Hello, Jill. Hi. Hi. Welcome, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Uh, world famous podcast, please. Yes. Internationally known, right? What'd you say? Internationally known. Barbara, say your spiel. You want to do it? Because I fucked it up last time. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. I I did it. I fumbled all around and stuff. So you can do it. That's all right. That's what I'm here for. I'm here. I'm I'm the cleanup. I I, I clean up your mess. Um, So... Uh, welcome to the audience. We have an awesome show for you. We have an awesome guest who's going to talk a little bit about their experience, uh, an opportunity for you all and us included to take something from it, learn, grow, and ideally apply it to our own personal lives. And so we'll start with introductions in, in, in a couple of seconds. But if you are listening and this is the first time you're listening to the show, a shame on you. Uh, we're episode 39. And so you have a lot of catching up to do, uh, but you are plugged in to the Addict and the Counselor podcast, where I, myself, Barbaros, is the counselor. And I, myself, Adam, is the addict. Yep. And uh, this is the podcast where we talk about anything uh, addiction-related to recovery uh, and treatment purposes so that for anyone who's listening, have a little bit of an idea about what we kind of experience both uh, internally and externally, uh, personally, and as a treatment provider, um, again, to ideally shed some light into this conversation. This is really important for both Adam and I. And so, you know, we are doing this podcast every week to just keep the eye and the momentum on um, addiction and recovery because it, it is something that impacts everyone's life every single day. Um, so you can listen to us on any podcast platform. Uh, if you do listen to us on Spotify, which we highly encourage because it's an opportunity for you to comment directly on the episode, which is a really cool feature. Um, you can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts and also Amazon Music Podcasts. And once again, any podcast, uh, just type in The Addict and The Counselor. And our awesome show will appear um, and catch up on some really, you know, um, awesome episodes. Um, a lot of great guests have come along the way. And so we are really excited about tonight's guest. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, any topics that we should cover, please also reach out to us um, via our Instagram account, which is The Addict and The Counselor. Or you can email us directly at the addict and the counselor at gmail.com. The addict and the counselor at gmail.com. <clears throat> so, um, Adam, you want to do intros? I'll do the intro. So, tonight we have a very special guest, my good friend Jill. And I've known Jill for time, I feel like. Um, and she used to frequent. The detox that we worked at Bob Rose. Um, she was in there quite a bit. Danvers. Sure was. Yep. Danvers, Brad. And um, she, I think she was, I believe she was in our shelter for quite a, a few times too. Good when, memory. Rare. And then she traveled with me as a client. She was a client at the methadone clinic that I worked at for a solid five years. Uh-huh. I don't know how long she was on there for. But um, where I believe I, I was di- I was directly I was your counselor there, right, Jill? Like yeah, yeah, you were, you sure were. All right. Um, and 
I recently reconnected with Jill. I think I saw her, um, I was on LinkedIn and I, um, you know, I'm connected with her on LinkedIn and I saw that she's working at a rehab, like in the field as a counselor. And, um, I reached out and we can, we reconnected and she's been telling, sharing with me like her story a little bit here and there in like the past year, I guess, or so. Um, and it's been like awesome to reconnect with, with her and, um, you know, and I, like, I, I vividly remember where she came from specifically, like early on in her treatment days and where she's at today. She's nothing short than a miracle. So, um, Jill, so whatever your comfort level is with sharing and whatever you want to share, or if you want to have conversation with me, like you can give both. Yeah, Barbara, I don't think I shared with you actually that, you know, she can give both sides of, you know, that she's in recovery and she's working in the field. So we, you know, occasionally we'll have a guest on that Mm -hmm. has experience in both. So that's always, that's always a a delight to have, you know, so however you want to do this, Jill, if you want to, whatever you want to do. All right, yeah, I guess, you know, I'll share a little bit of my story, but thank you for that introduction, Adam. And, like, yeah, I, we definitely go back quite a while um, to my days, like you said, frequenting Danvers Cab. Uh, and then you, when I found out, I was already on the clinic, and when I found out that you were coming on as a clinician, I think actually Anthony gave me the heads up. I think he was already working there. And he said, Adam's coming. And I'm like, oh, I'm definitely going to um, request him as my counselor. And uh, <laughs> the rest is kind of history. But, yeah. Um, when you got so sicker, I- you got sicker when you when I took you on as a right? Worse. Yeah. No, I was definitely uh, a mess back then. But we'll get there. We'll definitely get there. Um, and, yeah, and I'm just super glad that I, I think I had initially, like, reached out to you on LinkedIn, like, kind of, like, wanted to follow you or something, and I'm so glad I did, and, you know, um, and I, I was surprised, you know, by, you know, the turn of events in your life, but it, it honestly it just kind of reinforced to me how, like, vigilant I have to be because I used to look towards people like you and Anthony that I, I knew worked in the field and had come from active addiction, like as like the gold standard of people in recovery and like, like bulletproof. Um, and I, I've obviously, I've had some experiences, you know, since working in the field um, that have kind of drastically kind of reminded me that that is definitely not the case um, and that we are just as fallible as those that go and, and work or our accountants even more so probably because we deal with such heavy topics mm-hmm. but yeah you know but yeah so I guess I'll st- I'm gonna share like a little bit about my history and stuff but I- I'll probably focus more on like the last 10 years of my active addiction more than anything um I grew up in Saugus, which to those of you international listeners who are not familiar with Massachusetts with <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, with, north, yeah, with the four yeah. percent, the four percent, yeah, right? Yeah, um, North Shore of Boston, um, and I grew up there, and I was, you know, a relatively happy, well-adjusted child, or so I thought. <laughs> um, you know, did good in school, uh, college-bound, all that stuff, all the stuff you would, you know, your parents would want you to to be. Um, and I. You know, this was the late 90s. I, I was in high school from, like, 97 to 2000, so that kind of paints the picture of the era 
that I kind of came of age in. And, um, you know, I, I definitely dabbled in, in different substances, um, in high school, you know, the drinking, the, the pills, all that stuff. Um, but it wasn't, and, you know, I definitely did it to fit in. Um, I wanted to be accepted like desperately. Um, and so it kind of let me into circles that I may have not normally gravitated towards. And, um, you know, I remember like when I was 12, um, getting the popular girls to come hang out at my house because I told them we could like raid my parents' liquor cabinet. And, Mm. um, and like, that was like my in with them. And like, so that kind of started like my journey of like, you know, smoking cigarettes, smoking pot, all that stuff in middle school. But it wasn't until high school, I guess my, my senior year that I was introduced to the thing that would definitely change the trajectory of my life, that being Oxycontin. Um, and, you know, I was introduced to it at a house party, got violently ill, don't know why I did it again, but something, something, even that first time when I was, you know, thrown up in my friend's parents' bathroom, um, something was like, you, you're onto something here. This makes you feel, you know, not feel all the discomfort and the insecurity mm. and you know, all, all that stuff that I was feeling in adolescence that I couldn't articulate. Um, so, you know, my senior year, you know, I started, that was fall of 99. Um, I started, you know, I tried it, didn't really do it that often at first, but by, you know, by spring I was, you know, snorting oxys in the nurse's bathroom um, for fun. You know what I mean? This was all in good fun. I had no idea what an opioid was at that point. Um, mm. I didn't know anything, you know, this was, you know, the beginning of the, op- you know, the opioid epidemic. So none of us really were educated. Yeah. Um, not, that's not to say I wouldn't have made the same decisions because, you know, you just don't know. Um, so fa- I graduated high school, um, fast forward to, you know, that whole summer after, graduating you know the oxy use got really um really frequent um it was me me and all my closest friends were doing them so it felt safe Mm. um you know it felt really safe at the time like these kids the people that were selling them to me were kids that i had gone to school with my whole life i trusted them so i never thought like you know i never thought this was going to turn into what it did Mm -hmm. um went off to college um fall of 2000 i I went to Suffolk, um, and a lot of the kids from my high school also went to Suffolk, hmm. and that so like the, the drugs kind of followed me there. Um, that was very accessible to me, and I was finding myself, you know, hopping on the blue line and going home every chance I could to be with my friends and snort off. Um, by you know by that December when I had winter break, I I had made the decision that you know Suffolk wasn't for me. I was much more interested in hanging around Saugus, being a townie, and doing oxys. And so I got a job as a bank teller. I'm sorry, what? Because Saugus is so great. Oh, yeah, Saugus, yeah. I remember trapping Saugus with you like a few hundred times. Oh, yeah. Right? Yep. So, yeah, so I did all, you know, that that kind of, you know, continued for a few more months. And by then, you know, I was living at home with my parents, and by summer, they knew something was up. And eventually, they, you know, had a conversation with me, and they was, they flat out asked me, you know, are you on drugs? And I, I broke down, and I was like, yes, yeah, so, you know. What do you think yeah. tipped them off? 
Or even cut the Maybe. Well, first of all, probably, you know, quitting college was the first thing. Um, because I was always, like, a, a really good student. Um, I was withdrawn. I was being secretive. I was, you know, asking for a lot of money, um, you know, that I couldn't really account for. And just all the stuff. Like, I, I was at, I was uh, working as a bank teller, and, like, I wasn't able to, like, function anymore. I wasn't a good functioning addict. I never was. Um, and so, it, you know, they figured it out pretty quick. So I told them and they sent me to, um, to like, I think McLean hospital was my first detox. And how old were you, Jill? I was, there for like, I, was ni- I was 19, I believe 19. I was either 18 going on 19 or 19. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I was there for like two, two and a half days. They, they released me. They was like, okay. They're like, all right, you're detox. And I was like, okay. So like, I called my parents. I was like, you gotta come pick me up. They're letting me out. Um, and they were baffled. They didn't understand why they were sending me home so early. To this day, I don't either. Um, but yeah. Why did they? Yeah. Yeah, they just, you know, I, I wasn't presenting with severe withdrawal symptoms, yeah. I guess. So they, they cut me loose. So that was that. I went home and I relapsed immediately. Um, they didn't know for a while, but this kind of just went on for a little bit, but it wasn't long after my 19th birthday that it was getting to be really hard to sustain an oxy habit they were really expensive um and i was 19 and i i wasn't even working so it was it was just not i wasn't a good um criminal like i didn't like stealing i wasn't i wasn't like a great hustler so that kind of worked against me (laughs) jill can can you say how much uh how much you were spending on oxys at that time that's then after at that point, probably, you know, well, I mean, relatively tame for, compared to some people, not that, you know, I'm minimizing, um, mm-hmm. but probably like $160 a day, 80 to $160, depending on what I could kind of muster up between me and my, my best friend at the time, who was, you know, my running partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I, so by the time I was 19, I had, I had transferred to Salem State. I was taking some classes and things I had no interest in because I thought, I, you know, I'm in 19, I should be in college. So, and I, but I was, you know, I had an active addiction at that point, and I knew it. Um, so eventually that fall, I was introduced to heroin for the first time, and that kind of ended my pill addiction um, pretty fast. And so I did that. I, You know, I snorted heroin for a few months, and then, you know, Maybe six months into it, I finally um, was introduced to the needle, and that you know that brought my addiction to a whole other mm-hmm. level. Danger. Yeah. yeah, and you know it, it just brought so many complications with it. Um, so I did that for a while, and you know started the you know my parents would figure out that I was using. They would you know tell me I had to go to treatment. I would go to detox. I would you know kind of walk the walk i would talk the talk but no one was well. the danvers or is, is it still too early before you started um i i probably had made it to danvers by the time i was like 21 and then once i was there that kind of became my most frequented um detox i wasn't somebody that went to detox a whole lot um because i just i i had no interest in in uprooting my comfortable lifestyle what i thought was comfortable um Mm. i was very much like a suburban drug addict um i didn't you know what i mean i had you know my drug deals from lynn they would come to my house in august i didn't do a lot of like you know running the streets um 
and so because I was, you know, I was enabled, you know, and we'll get to that too. Um, so I didn't really have to do those things. So, yeah, so I did that for a while. And eventually when I was about 22, I went on methadone for the first time and I sustained some, I don't want to say recovery, but I was abstinent for about two and a half years. And, um, I went, I started going to college. I, you know, started my bachelor's degree in social work. Um, I eventually came off the clinic. You know, I went, I I did it the right way, went down to one milligram. Um, but I really didn't have a whole lot. I didn't have any recovery in place. All my, my whole recovery was going to the clinic, getting my dose, going to the required group and the required therapy. I didn't have any other sober Mm. connections in my life. I was still hanging around with drug addicts, active drug addicts. Mm. So it took about seven days of me being off the the clinic um, before I took my first pill. Mm. And um, yeah, so it it was pretty quick. And this was when I was in my, I believe my first senior year of college um, and it couldn't have come at a worse time. So I relapsed, I was shooting heroin within two weeks again. Um, you know, and at this point I had been sober for a while. I was doing well. I had credit. So I went and got every credit card you could possibly think of and used them to fund my drug addiction. Mm. Um, you know I mean? I, like I said, I wasn't a good criminal. I didn't like boost in. I, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't have the, the currency to become a drug dealer. So that was kind of my hustle. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I did that for a while and it kind of, and eventually, so like it kind of just stayed the way it was. Eventually, I was like, I, I didn't like being dope sick. Um, you know, so I eventually went back on the clinic again with no real motivation to change my behaviors. It was more just like, I just don't want to be dope sick every day. And mm-hmm. this will enable me to, to function. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. I ended up um, not graduating college. I should rewind a little bit. I ended up overdosing. Um, and confiding that into, to one of my, um, my coworkers, I was doing my internship at the time at, um, at a homeless shelter in Salem. And, um, and I was about three weeks away from finishing said internship. And then once that was completed, I would have gotten my degree and, um, cause all my classes had been completed and I came to the clinic in Lynn. Yes, yes. Right? Yes, exactly. Wow. So, yeah. 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 So, I ended up losing my internship and not graduating, like, literally three weeks shy, maybe, like, 40 hours away from completing that internship. And that, like, that crushed me. That, like, crushed my soul. Hmm. Um, You know, even in active addiction, I was still able to, like, get really good grades and, and, you know, and achieve something that had meant so much to me. And then it was all taken away and uh, by my own actions, you know, I take full responsibility for that. And, you know, I've come to realize it wasn't my time, but it took me years to get over that. Um, you know, I had kind of resolved myself to the fact that I would never work in the field again. It wasn't, I wasn't meant to, um, and had just taken some, you know, monotonous retail jobs that I hated because I didn't think I deserved anything better and I didn't think I was capable of anything. Um, so yeah, I continued to use and I got on, you know, I was on one clinic at this point and, um, 
I, I you know, the one thing, you know, I want to say about all those years that I, cause I've, you know, I, I, I'm still on methadone and I've probably been on it at this point for close to 14 years mm. and about 10 of those were not in recovery. Um, but I wouldn't change it for the world because congratulations, Jill. Alive. I'm sorry. What'd you say? Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, but it, it kept me alive. Like, mm-hmm. you know, without, cause I wasn't the, you know, at, at a lot of, a lot of those years I was a dabbler. You know what I mean? I maybe used three, four times a week. Some weeks I would use every day, but it, because, you know, because it kept me with the tolerance, because it kept me connected to therapy and resources, mm-hmm. um, I, still, I, I, I truly believe that I probably would not be, you know, sitting here to speak to you guys if I didn't consistently go to the clinic despite the fact that I wasn't being successful, you know, in recovery and that I was still struggling. Um, but, yeah, it, it definitely kept me kept the hope alive for me and just being able to you know kind of talk it out and i i mean i don't know adam what did you think of me at that point like when i was going through all that stuff well i mean i always seen you as like someone who was like you always had like a pretty legit like response to whatever I was like trying to give you, you know, like any counseling, like I was providing with, like I was trying to do with you, you always, you were like smart. So like, yeah, yeah. you always had like an adequate, like what seemed to be like an adequate comeback to something. Mm-hmm. And so I struggled with like counseling you, counseling you a little bit. You were kind of too smart for your own good type of thing. I always thought, I guess, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's like my take, but like the other part is like, you, (laughs) like you were one of, you're one of my, I have like very few like favorite clients and you're (laughs) one of them. You're one of the great of all time. Um, and you know, I can share that with you now because you're not my client. Right. <laughs> I only knew that you were, I was, you were one of my favorites anyways, but you were like, I, like, I always felt like you had this, like, great, like, soul. Like, you had, like, this unbelievable heart, like, soul inside you. You were, like, so caring of a person, and I just, like, just like prayed for you to be able to get recovery someday, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you always, you were smart. So you were different. You were difficult. Like, to well, yeah, yeah. Cause I, cause you know, and I think, you know, that goes to my, you know, the fact that I was, you know, in school to be a social worker and just kind of learning how to play the game after all those right. years. I knew, I'm like, I this, knew what I'm my like, therapist this girl, wanted to hear. Right. I'm like, this girl's like using counseling against me. Like I'm her counselor. Like, <laughs> Jill, Jill, can I ask you while you were on that clinic and Lynn, you know, this, that, those early rounds and you mentioned that, you know, you're, you're still kind of using off and on, you know, were you testing positive? I know. Cause like, you know, when I worked in methadone clinics after a certain amount of positives, like we had to put people on like behavior contracts and that stuff happened with you. Not, I mean, I definitely tested positive, but, um, I was pretty, um, like careful, you know what I mean? Like, cause I didn't want to get on the radar too much 
So I would kind of time it, you know what I mean? Time my use. Sure. Like, you know, I knew when the, I knew when the, um, when the swabs were coming, I also knew how to pass the swabs without, um, you know, just kind of keeping them dry in your mouth and hoping for the best. And so, yeah, I, de- you know, a couple of times, you know, I definitely got called out, called out of my behavior, like meaning, you know, the, the positive drug screens. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I, because I was very compliant, I think I flew under the radar. Um, no, never so, a knee girl issue. Like, yeah, you just minded your own, you know? Yes. I did. And, you know, and a lot of that is definitely just my personality, but it was also intentional because I didn't want to be being pulled into the director's office every, you know, other week for something stupid. Like, I just kind of wanted to do my thing. <laughs> I wanted to not be dope sick. And so I was going to do what I had to do in order to maintain, you know, good standing at the clinic. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And so, you know, while I was on that clinic, you know, I got into a relationship. Um, I don't know if I was in this relationship when you were my counselor or not adam um but yeah it was it was very toxic and you know was i was in a relationship with the person on the clinic no no the person was not an addict um she was not an addict so i was living like this double life i was you know working in a retail store and you know barely just making it um you know to support my drug habit and i was still living at home with my parents but kind of moved in with this girl and uh, it was just a very toxic relationship, um, and, you know, it kind of, it definitely made me, you know, lean on substances more. I, you know, started taking Adderall pretty frequently, um, and then obviously, you know, still using um, heroin almost every day, um, but this was, like, t- kind of a shift for me because, the heroin started becoming fentanyl um, around this time. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and I just didn't like fentanyl. And so like, it was, it was starting to like not work for me really anymore. Um, and I just was kind of doing it because it was all I knew. I wasn't, you know, there was no enjoyment. There was no relief coming from it. It was just like, I don't know what else to do. This is just part of my identity. Every day at this time of day, I call my drug dealer and I go meet him. And then I go, and then I go do my drugs and then I smoke cigarettes. And, and that was just, that was so ingrained. You know, what, my, you, know, you, know, life. you know what sick thought I have though sometimes still? Like, you just mentioned, like, and then some of it started to be fentanyl, and, you know, you didn't really do fentanyl, because we all know why, you know? But um, I I think sometimes I'm like, when was that last bag of real heroin? Yeah. Like, there. Like, who had it? Like, the last (laughs) heroin. That's, like, my sixth book. Anyways. Yeah. No, totally. And, like, I gotta be honest. Like, I maybe. You know, I may have been more susceptible to relapse early on in my recovery if real heroin was still available. Um, yeah. You know, so, you know, in that sense, like, you know, fentanyl saved me a little because I really did not like it. And my, the drug that I liked was just not available anymore. So it was either continuing to do something I'm not enjoying and that's taking everything I care about from me or do something different. So, yeah. So let me rewind a little. So, yeah. So that relationship ended when um, she was my fiance at the time, caught me with a needle hanging out of my arm. Um, and she broke up with me on the spot. That was it. I, you know, she had a child, you know, whatever. She had her reasons. And that was that. And that kind of set me on a spiral. 
um, like where I was like on a suicide mission, my, you know, addiction got really bad, like really, really bad. And, um, I, I didn't know what to do. Like I finally went, I finally started going to like real therapy besides just the therapy provided for me at the methadone clinic. Um, I got a therapist and I really, I kind of started working on myself still using, but I was trying to develop more skills and more tools and more resources to mm-hmm. kind of com- combat depression and anxiety. Well, you're becoming and, more honest, right? Yes. And I was starting to be honest and that, and Barbara, thank you for saying that because that was a key thing. I was starting to be honest in therapy, um, which was something I, I, I really struggled with mm-hmm. pretty much my whole adult life that I was in therapy. Um, so yeah, so I kind of was still dabbling, you know, using a few times a week, you know, smoking weed every day. And then um, a few months after that really, really bad breakup, I met a, I met a woman and, um, you know, that kind of changed things for me because I was starting to, you know, realized that I couldn't with her I could not live a double life um she was really on it like anytime I used she knew she was told me I was going to use before I actually used like and it was it was kind of like eerie how she kind of had had her pulse you know the pulse on kind of what I was doing Mm. and so eventually you know we you know for the first eight months I put her through hell um it was you know you know, she would find me all, all messed up and have to, like, kind of hide me from, you know, her daughter. And she, you know, and finally, then COVID hit, actually. Then COVID hit um, about six months into our relationship. And that, like, kind of changed the world. Um, it definitely changed, you know, my ability to to obtain drugs. Because so, now... Sorry, let me... So this is a new woman that you met, right? This isn't the same. Yeah, no, this is a completely new person. Yeah. I did meet her. Can you share that? I met her on a dating app online on Plenty of Fish. Ah. Oh. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I hate <laughs> yeah. I know, but it was just like it. It was weird because like I hadn't gone on that site for a while. I was just kind of trying to rebound from my breakup, and yeah. you know, I was not in a good place. And then one random day, I was working at Home Goods and I was on my break smoking a cigarette. And I was like, oh, let me check the app. And she just happened to message me that day. And I responded. And then the kind of the rest was history. Yeah. Um, and we move in, you know, and part of, you know, active addiction is, you know, impulsivity. And, you know, we moved really fast, like really, really fast. Like I was basically living with her. You know, we got together in November, um, early November by Christmas, I was pretty much living at her house. Um, and it didn't take long for me to like fully move in. So I definitely, you know, it's the typical, um, lesbian thing. Like we, they sit when they say we bring you all to our first date. That's kind of like what happened. Um, Jill, what what was, uh, what was her recovery status or any experience on her behalf? um, Your partner? she She has never done drugs. Um, you know, she, you know, drank heavily in her 20s um and then she had um her daughter and kind of you know her life changed so she was never really had she's never had an addiction Mm -hmm. um she definitely suffers from some mental health stuff but Mm. as far as addiction goes okay um 
she was familiar with it from living from growing up in Lynn and having a lot of friends sure. kind of go down the same road I did. And then her previous partner before me was actually an opioid addict. So she, it's funny because one of the first things she said to me in our, in our first conversation, like the first night we talked, she was just like, you know, um, there's a few things that I won't, um, I won't tolerate just kind of talking about our, you know, the things that we want. She's like, I won't date a drug addict again because my, my last relationship turned out really badly and she was a drug addict. And I was like, Oh, though that was a nice 24 hours. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to tell her because I can't not at this point. Um, but I, I, I was deceptive because I said I was an addict that was that had been in recovery for a few months, which was absolutely not the case. Yeah. Um, and so she decided to take a chance on me for whatever reason. And that kind of started our relationship. Um, and she very quickly, within the first few weeks, found out that that was not the case, that I was definitely still struggling. Um, and so, like, the next few months was just kind of her trying to manage me. And, like, while we're trying to build this life with each other um and then i said like i said then COVID happened um and the world stopped and we were together 24 hours a day seven days a week because we were all quarantining um and i couldn't hide my you know i couldn't go use in secret anymore like it just wasn't possible so like i i was doing okay like i wasn't doing great but i was doing better um and then come June, June of 2020, I managed, I was on a different clinic at the time and I hooked up with a couple girls that were in my group and they became my new, um, like drug plug, my new plug because, um, my girlfriend at the time had threatened my drug dealer and he wouldn't serve me anymore. (laughs) So I I didn't have a drug dealer for a while so that, you know, I kind of had no choice but to stay clean. Um, but then, yeah, so then I got, I got a bag from this girl and I was about to do it. And all I had done was like, I licked the bag. I, I, you know, when I was kind of setting up my stuff and then Renee, my girlfriend at the time burst in the bathroom door and caught me just about right, right before I was about to do it. And like, you know, a big fight ensued, but Fast forward the next morning, all of a sudden I started having these weird symptoms. Um, like I was delirious. Um, she thought I was having a stroke. I started, like, I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. So she rushed me off to, um, the hospital in Lawrence and, you know, they did some tests and they came to the conclusion that I had something called fentanyl delirium. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and, and it was only from licking that bag. So I feel like, you know, that was divine intervention um, because what I, what I forgot to mention was it was three o'clock in the morning and she was dead asleep and something woke her up out of it. And we had gotten in an argument that day. So she wasn't expecting me to be in the bed next to her. She thought I was going to be sleeping on the couch, but something propelled her up out of her bed. Like before she even like fully opened her eyes. And she she just told me she knew she had to get to the bathroom. She didn't know why. And she caught me in that moment right before I, I shot that fentanyl or whatever it was. And, like, I, I firmly believe that if that whole thing didn't play out, I probably would have died from doing that whole bag of fentanyl. Um, because, what ha- you know, the stuff that happened to me just from licking a bag um, is pretty significant. So... 
Yeah, so that happened, and, and then she was just, she. I got an ultimatum. It was like, okay, you either need to get help, or I'm ending things with you forever. And to boot, she got my parents on board, and my parents were like, oh, and by the way, if Renee breaks up with you, you can't come home either. So I was like, oh, shit, like, this is this is a conundrum. Because, <laughs> like I said, I had been very much a suburban drug addict, and so going and like living on the streets or having nowhere to sleep at night was not um, desirable for me. I was just like, oh shit, you know, this is this, this is it. They're finally, you know, after 20 years, they're finally putting their foot down. Uh, You know, I have to do something different. Um, So after a lot of conversations and, you know, you know, with my clinician at the time, you know, at the clinic I had, you know, I was then on, um, they finally got me to agree to go to treatment. And so I did, and I stayed. I didn't just stay for detox. Um, I committed to a whole CS, you know, a full CSS program. And this, oh. was, this was all, yeah, this was during COVID. Uh, so it was, it was difficult. Mm. You know, it, no visits. Also, good time to be in treatment, though, inpatient. Nothing was yeah. going on out in the world, you know. Right, exactly. So I wasn't missing a whole lot. Um, and I, you know, I was, you know, getting paid to get sober because, you know, everyone was collecting unemployment at that time. So I was like, okay, yeah, well, whatever, I'll do it. Um, but I, at this, like, something changed within me very early on in that treatment episode. Um, I, I started to want it. Like, I really started to want recovery. Um, I, I didn't, you know, not just because if I didn't, I was going to lose my relationship and have nowhere to live. But I started to remember, like, the things that I, I, I dreamed about, like, the things that I had long given up on, like, mm. being close to, you know, starting to, ha- you know, work with the treatment team and, and you know, and be engaged and, be, and being honest kind of reignited my passion for, like, okay, if I can do this, if I can actually sustain meaningful recovery, then I can actually come back and do this for work. I can actually come back and help other people. But first, I have to take care of myself. So I committed to it. And, you know, I had some amazing therapists um, and, you know, people working with me at this facility. And um, I really opened up and I really was inspired by the people that worked in that facility that were very open about the fact that they were also in recovery. Um, and, And again, like I said, it motivated me. It really did to to want to do better and at this point you know i had things that i was i was afraid to lose um so i completed the program and i also signed up to do you know an iop and everything was virtual at this point um but i did it and so i went home to you know to my girlfriend i think we were engaged at this point nothing's worse than iop oh my god yeah i honestly i i got a lot from it though i really enjoyed it um and Maybe it was because I didn't know anything. Sorry, I'm, just so, I'm, I'm just a lot more negative than most people. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was really hard for me to get on board with the whole like telehealth thing and having to do therapy on the phone. And it was really hard for me because I was very um, programmed to think that I had to sit in an office with a clinician in yeah. order to get something from like yeah. the therapeutic alliance. Yeah. You know? I think, you know, I think it helped that I had been with my clinician for a while and had known her, you know, been mm. with her in person yeah. for quite a while before COVID. But 
yeah, so I started doing the damn thing. I went home. I I didn't use, like, I, you know. And you're I on the clinic. The, you're on the clinic. Yes. And the funny thing was, like, I got, I, I was, I was, ver- I was very close to, at this point, just coming off of the clinic completely. Um, right before I went to treatment, I called my clinician and I was just like, you need to, you need to figure out a way to rapidly detox me off 45 milligrams in two weeks. I can't do this anymore. It's not working. Mm. And she had a really honest conversation with me and I was like, I'm going to do Vivitrol. I forget what I said. I was going to do something else. And she had a really frank conversation with me and she was just like, you know, Joe, you know, methadone is the highest level of MAT there is. Okay. Like it's, it's the top, you know, it's the top tier. Yeah. What make and you, you, you're struggling to be successful and to get, and get stable. She's like, what makes you think that ripping you off of this dose in two weeks and going to detox for a week is going to be, you're going to be more successful at it. Mm. Um, and I was just like, she kind of had a point like, okay, like, Maybe it's the it's not the methadone that's the problem. It's the fact that I'm not doing anything else. Mm. The fact that I am ju- that's all I'm doing. And yeah, of course I'm not going to be successful if that's yeah. the only thing that I'm I'm working on is just going and getting a dose every day so I'm not sick. <clears throat> that's it's it wasn't enough. So she finally and I also didn't know that I could at this point. You would think I would have known that by now, but. I didn't know that I could just go into a CSS program as a direct admit, not needing to be detoxed and just do rehab. So when I found out I could do that, I was like, oh, okay, then, you know, there's no, there's no, has, there's no rush for me to have to come off of methadone if I can still go to inpatient treatment. So that's what I did. I found a facility that had a bed, um, and I went as a direct admit to the CSS program and I, and I just did the program. And, um, and then I left and I, like I said, I did the IOP, but I also, um, added smart recovery to the mix. Um, and that, you know, I'm sorry, what? Nice. Yeah. And, you know, I, and, and I'm not here to, to knock any, any mode of treatment, any pathways, but for me, um, I just, I never felt not comfortable. Comfortable is the wrong word, but I just never felt at ease in, in 12 step programs. Um, Mm. it had been a struggle for me. Um, you know, I would, I, I really, I felt like something was wrong with me because this doesn't feel right. Uh, and it took a long time for me to accept that it wasn't that it just was, it wasn't wrong. I wasn't doing recovery wrong. If I found something else that works for me, that wasn't like the mainstream thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I jumped into my recovery and, you know, just kind of really took, that year where, um, you know, the world was still kind of a really weird place and a lot of people were out of work. Um, but like I had like probably one of the best years of my life that first year because I was really able to kind of focus on the things that I had been neglecting for so long. Um, and you know, mental health being a huge component of that. Um, I, I always thought that my depression, I I never thought I had anxiety because probably because I was doing opioids for 20 years, (laughs) I didn't have a chance to experience anxiety. (laughs) Really Um, calm. (laughs) But I I knew I always had depression, but I always, uh, I always like attributed it to my drug addiction. Like I'm depressed because I'm a drug addict and I'm a failure and I didn't live up to all the expectations I had for myself and that other people had for me. Um, 
And then I got clean and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be good as long as I kind of just work my program. Like, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be content. And, you know, that, that kind of wasn't the case. I was still very much suffering from you know, mental health stuff. And that first year, people kept telling me, you know, it might be post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Like, it's just the first year, like, you know, mm-hmm. your brain, like your chemistry realigning, all that stuff. So I, I was patient with myself. And I didn't let it deter me from the things that I wanted. But it was it was frustrating. Um, so, you know, I, but I held on. And, you know, I started trying, I started taking different medications and actually really taking them and continuing to engage in, in therapy um in addition you know in addition to the you know the, the counseling i was getting at the clinic i you know i i just i did all the things that you know i was i knew were good for me and that you know people told me i should do mm-hmm. um and i was able to kind of i was finally able to achieve you know long-term recovery and i you know i celebrated the year and then a couple Month after that, uh, I, I well, yeah, I should probably add in the fact that I did get married um, a few months out of treatment, and so I ended up, you know, getting married to my wife. Um, and so that you know, we were living together, we were starting a home, you know, we lived in North Andover, and things were going oh, well. Oh, my neck of the woods, Jill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was living right across from Merrimack College. Yeah, so you know, things were going good, but the dynamics in my relationship had changed and it was, it was hard. It was a hard adjustment. Um, because you know, my wife went from having to worry about me, you know, 24 hours a day and kind of manage me and kind of, you know, we were trauma bonding over my active addiction. And then I kind of learned how to stand on my own two feet a little bit more and that changed things. And it it was a hard adjustment, like a really hard adjustment. Um, and I was home, you know, she went back to work, you know, not too far into COVID, but we decided that I would stay home and, and kind of be with my stepdaughter while she was doing, you know, the online school and all that stuff. So, you know, things were good. Things were going well, but I was definitely feeling unfulfilled, um, because, you know, because I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was contributing to like society in a meaningful way. Hmm. Um, so one of the things that I, you know, my goal was that once I hit a year in recovery, I would go back and apply at the treatment center that I got sober at. Um, and so I waited, I waited about like 15 months. Um, and then I, I did just that. I applied, I got hired as like, you know, as a residential support staff, you know, kind of entry level stuff. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that, that was me, you know, dipping my toe in the pool of, you know, working in the field. And, you know, I, I did that job for about six months. And then as soon as, you know, my six month probationary period had ended, I applied to become a recovery counselor and I was, and I got that. And I've been doing that ever since. So that kind of brings me to present day. You know, we've I've been doing it for almost two years now in that role. And I work uh, on a, I work on a, thank you. Yeah, I work on women's, thank you. It, 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 it was a long time coming, Adam. It really was. And like I said, I, I kind of gave up on that. Like I thought that was always going to be like an unfulfilled dream. Um, and if not for the people that, that I experienced working with when I was in treatment, I don't know if, if I would have ever gotten that 
that encourage because I was encouraged. They were just like, Jill, this is what you're meant to do. Like, get yourself get yourself clean, stay clean, and come back and work here. Like, this is you know you you are you gravitate towards this for a reason. Um, and so that's what I did. Like, and it was like to me like that was the first in in my adult life like the first thing that I that a goal that I like big goal that I had set that I achieved. Yeah. And that really that really meant everything to me. And I value that so much. So, yeah, I work on a – and I know you guys talked about the Section 35 process a little bit a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was I listened to that episode. And I didn't realize that it wasn't, like, a nationwide thing. And I probably should know that since I work on a Section 35 <laughs> unit. But I didn't know that, like, every state didn't have something similar. Yeah. Really... Some of them have, like, different – they call it something different. But a lot of right. states don't have it at all, anything yeah. like it, you know. Yeah, like a civil commitment. But, yeah, Correct. so – you know, it's so are you, it's, are you, you're on the, cl- you're on a clinic right now. I am. Yeah. And, and I'm, I tell my, a little bit. Do you feel comfortable diving into that for a few minutes? Of course. Yeah. All right. So, cause like the stigma is still pretty strong, like around that, right? It's, it's been there. It's not quite as bad, like as it used to be right from years ago. Yeah. Uh, we've made a lot of progress in that area. Um, but like for our listeners who are not that educated around methadone treatment, even for people that, you know, maybe work in the field that just are biased against it, there's a lot of that still, I would say, too. For sure. Um, yeah. You know, what's what do you have to say about like where you're at with, with being on the clinic and recovering today? Like, where, like, can you talk about like your dose or like, can you, you know, give us some information about like what it's about for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, like I, 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 I said earlier, like I've been consistently on methadone now probably for close to 14 years. I don't know exactly because I've hopped around clinics a little bit. But, yeah, um, I went to treatment on, I believe, 45 milligrams. And today, almost three and a half years into recovery, I'm down to 10 Awesome. Um, which for those who aren't familiar with methadone, like the best, the most, the safest, most comfortable way to taper off a of methadone is slowly. Um, what did I say? One to two every other week. People hate yeah. it. Yeah. No, and, and that's what, yeah. And that's what I've done. Like, and sometimes not even, you know, sometimes slower, you know, yeah. it's, you know, I'm in no rush, like because I'm in recovery and because I've been, you know, doing the right thing for so long. I go once a week. Like, you know, obviously if you're using, then yes, they're going to require you to go every day. <laughs> right. um, they're going to want to put eyes on you. Um, they wanna, they're going to want to, you know, be more hands-on in your treatment. Right. Uh, but yeah. But, but yeah. Low taper, it's just so it makes sense for people too. Like you would go down one or like if you went down, like say, for example, one or one or two milligrams, then you take the week or two off so your body adjusts to being on the lower dose. Now, a lot of people would say one or two milligrams, that's not really a lot. But no, for methadone, like, you feel it. And and you feel it from, like, the milligrams from, like, a while back, too, you know, that you're kind of the back end of that withdrawal from, like, 
earlier on, you know? I don't know. Right, yeah, because the half-life is so long with methadone that, you know, people don't realize it kind of, like, the doses build up. And so it takes, I know I've heard some people, like, before they used, before they gave methadone in jail, and again, that, that might just be a Massachusetts thing. Um, but, mm-hmm. like, people would be locked up for two or three weeks, fine, and then all of a sudden the withdrawals would just hit them. So, yeah, I've definitely been very strategic in coming off. And at this point, because, and, like, I could have been off a long time ago at this point and comfortably, um, but I just, I haven't rushed myself because I haven't felt the need to, like, because I've been able, because I've been doing the right thing for so long, you know, I go once a week, you know, you build up, you know, trust with them and and then they become comfortable giving you a week's worth of medication to take home with you. Um, So I go once a week, you know, I get my, you know, drug tests once a month. I talk to my clinician every week for a half hour on the phone, but that's it. So it's not, you know, once you, people are like, Oh, I don't want to be on these liquid handcuffs. And it's so, it's so, you know, it's so much of a commitment. It's like, yeah, it takes you a little while to build up to that trust level. And like, you know, when you get so many bottles a week, but that being said, if you're doing the right thing, it doesn't take that long. Exactly. I I love talking about methadone. Same here. Same. So, so like, yeah, a lot of people will say, we'll call it like, you know, we used to call it liquid handcuffs because you had to show up every day and you you know, you couldn't, it was tough to like take a trip out of state, right? That type yeah, of, and, but and like, it's not. It's not the, if you're doing the right thing. Right, but like the first like six months, you're in a clinic at least, or like the first six months to a year, like you're trying to find like a therapeutic dose usually in your first, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it takes about that amount of time to find like a, go- a dose that's going to work for you, and then, and then you're like state getting stable for like on year two, three, and four on methadone, right? right. And you're yeah. head towards, you know, a good positive recovery, you know? So, like, it's not like, it's not a quick, like, okay, I'm going to go on methadone for a little while. No, it's like a five-year program, at least. In oh, my yeah, mind. for sure. Right? I agree. I 100% right. agree. So, like, do it appropriately. It's a five-year program. Now, and like... It is a big commitment at first, like, for sure, because, like, while you're trying to find that, like, dose that's right for you, like, yeah, you have to show up every day. It's one of the most, like, people don't, in clients, like, that go on the methadone clinic, and you could speak for this, too, a lot of times they don't know what they're getting into by getting on the methadone clinic and what a commitment it actually is. Right? Yeah. Like, no, you definitely not don't. world, that's one of the most committed types of treatment that's that's out there like in our continuum i want to talk i want to talk the stigma is like i want to talk you know not you know it's not like that you know but it's you have to be really committed to shut to go on clinic i think i want i want to talk um thank you thank you for the space um jill I, th- I think the th- part that jumps out at me is that, like, you said it very early on in your early introduction with methadone, like, methadone was it, right? Like, you weren't doing anything to kind of, like, build yourself up and really work a recovery program. And, you know, I've worked in a total of two different methadone programs in two different states, New Hampshire, um, like, about, like, seven years uh, in, in total. 
And that's one of the things that I would always preach, but going to kind of what Adam was talking about, that whole commitment piece of it. And this was kind of said to me like early on, like if you think of like active addiction, it's so chaotic. It's so, it you know, in the state of like, I'm in withdrawal, I'm sick, I got to hustle, I got to find money, I got to go drugs. And that's the mind frame, like every second of the day. What methadone says to you is that we're, one, we're not open all day and night, right? The dosage window is very short-lived. And so you got to get your ass up out of bed and show up to a, a therapeutic environment where there is a nurse who is providing you this medication and having some dialogue. There's some face-to-face with like, you know, a person and then the requirements of like individual therapy and group therapy and kind of like working those steps try to really change around that kind of chaotic active addiction lifestyle to something a, a little bit more organized and if you think about it if someone can kind of like adhere to that like that organization they are breaking that mind frame of like the chaos of active addiction being like oh just like someone who you know may go to dialysis right you got to go up there and show up every day and you got to communicate with them and then like go home and still do the right thing and then come back the next day. So really building in that cycle that I would try to like really put the contact of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely, that definitely helped. And I think it, and to, and to what you were saying, Bob Rose, I feel like being on the clinic slowed down that chaos of active addiction. Uh-huh. I didn't wake up in the state of hypervigilance every morning wondering where I was going to get my next fix. It was, you know, such I a great change. Yeah. You know, it was just like, I was able to kind of be more thoughtful, right. if that's even the word, about like my drug use. Well, like, the obsession gets removed. Do I really need to use today or can right. I hold off? You know what I mean? Like, and at the very, I, right. I try to tell like people like at the very least, at first, at least the person's using less usually, right? Yeah. Using less than what they were using, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, I have a question, another question for you. So, um, so how's it been? It seems like you're really open about being on methadone, right? And with, you know, that can be challenging for people. A lot of people, if they're on the clinic and even if they're successful on the clinic and feel good about their recovery they don't really share that they're on the clinic right but you seem to be real open about it what's that been like like what like you know are you open in all areas of your life of being on the clinic like tell us about it if you can yeah i i definitely am and if i wasn't i probably wouldn't have talked about it on this podcast (laughs) right Um, exactly yeah but you know, obviously, I don't tell my patients I'm on methadone, but I, my team, uh, the clinical team I work with, they all know. And it's been great because I've been kind of, you know, not that I'm an expert, but I've s- sort of been um, the advocate, sure. you know what I mean, on, on our, our treatment team in terms of, like, you know, trying to dissuade somebody, you know, from um, tapering off a of methadone when they were with us for like 30 days and like kind of explain to people that didn't understand methadone why that, obviously the nurses knew, but to the clinical team why that's dangerous and why it's probably not in their best interest. And just kind of, you know, being able to be supported and, and just kind of like, you know, show people what, 
methadone can look like because I think people, because of the stigma, people have a certain image in their head sure. of what like of what a methadone client looks like, mm. and that you know they might be nodding out and they they might have slurred speech and they may not you know be able to you know articulate themselves well, um, and I think that I've I've hopefully broken some stigmas for people about methadone treatment For and sure. just the fact that you are able to lead a very successful life and be in meaningful recovery regardless of whether you're on methadone or not um and that methadone just because you're on methadone doesn't mean like you're cheating at recovery um and i think that's that's probably one of the things that probably steered me more towards smart recovery um when you know i did get sober that fear that I would walk into an NA meeting and if I didn't, if I disclosed that I was on methadone, I would be looked at like, Oh, you're not, you're not clean enough. And then if I didn't disclose it, feeling as though I wasn't being authentic. Correct. Um, you know what I mean? So I didn't want to have to hide a part of my recovery that was really serving me. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and I'm not saying that every person in NA feels that way because I know plenty of people that don't, um, but yeah, I, it, it was def- definitely a reservation for me because I want people to understand that, you know, that people can be successful and they can go work in the field and they can go do whatever they want to do and, yeah. and be on methadone and not have it be a hindrance, but just kind of help accentuate, um, someone's recovery. Yeah. Awesome. I love this for you. Yeah. I love, I love how you have a, you have a go-to methadone person at the, you know, at the rehab. I love that. That's awesome. Um, Jill, as we wrap up your story for this podcast, anything you want to say in closing? I I have one particular question for you, but I I want to kind of just, you know, give you the space to kind of end how you want to end. Um, I don't know. Not really. I just think like, you know, um, mental health is so huge. Um, it's been such a big part of my journey and being open to trying new things, um, that might not be, you know, mainstream. Um, but, uh, you know, there are other things other than medication that work for you that can work for you. Um, mm-hmm. and I encourage people to kind of, to explore those things, um, because they've definitely helped me a great deal. Awesome. Um, and I'm just, I'm grateful. I'm just grateful to be where I'm at today. I'm grateful that, um, that Adam and I reconnected mm-hmm. after all these years. Um, and I'm grateful that you guys had me on this podcast. Yeah, awesome. Um, one other thing that kind of keeps on coming up, I mean, obviously Adam sharing, you know, his his stuff, but also all their guests, is that, like, what advice would you give someone like you who is in those kind of, like, early experimental, like, phases? Like, what advice or what thing could kind of help them get away from all of that? Oh, that's that's a good question. Um, I don't think Seth gets that, have we? <laughs> no, no. I've been meaning to. It just keeps on slipping. Yeah. Um, no, I'd say like try try things that are like kind of out of your comfort zone. Like the one of the biggest lessons that like I that I was taught early in my recovery is to like get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and once you can do that, and you can kind of start learning skills. Um, yeah you know, therapy, 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 um, meetings, you know, different, try different types of meetings. I think eventually like you'll find something that, that feels right to you. Um, and I think like 
one of the biggest things is, is don't think you need to conform to what other some, uh, someone else's recovery looks like. Yeah. Like follow suggestions, like, you know, I model the people in your life or the people that touch you, um, the people that you want what they have. Definitely try to model that, but don't be afraid to do things a little differently if it feels right to you and if it helps kind of um, enrich your recovery, just go for it. Awesome. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's no, there's not one path to recovery and we need to kind of stop trying to put people in a box. Um, yeah. You know, break out of the box because, you know, what works for one person, it might be completely different for someone else. And uh, I think we need to be open to that. And I think more treatment programs need to be open to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and not just kind of, preach one one pathway awesome awesome Th thank you so much thank you for being so transparent uh i greatly appreciate it i hope you can hold on for the five controversies of course ah all right all right uh adam uh do you mind uh turning on the transition music I can see on the on on me recording this episode like the sound waves. Dude, next week, no, two weeks from now when we're doing this together for the first time in the same room. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do a transition music with you right you, there. You, you, you better start. I'm going to be able to pull it off. You're going to have to try. You're going to have to try. It's absolutely hilarious. I have faith in you, Adam. You'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh once again for the audience if this is the first time that you're listening to the show this is the part of the show that we call the five controversies where i throw out at least two options sometimes more um to our guests uh, and then adam and you know, we all respond and we kind of have a little kind of debate about why we pick one over another and i think it's a little fun game especially the heat you know the intensity of our conversation um can feel very very heavy and this is a way of kind of you know lightening mood a little bit as we kind of end the show so uh jill is jill is game and so we'll start with you and then uh adam is the middle of the pack and then yours truly will bring up the rear okay. all right so first one off the gate he's gonna be good shut up um jill kayak versus canoe Oh, I definitely to say kayak because I've only ever been in a kayak. And that was one of the first activities I did out of treatment. So, like, that actually kayaking is very near and dear to my heart. All right. So definitely kayaking. You're a yakker. All right. All right. Adam? I can't remember ever kayaking, but I've canoed quite a bit. So, I'm just going to go with what I know, and that's canoeing. I don't have, so really don't have a good reason for it, only that it's the one that I've done. Okay. I've done both. Um, yeah, no shit. That's why you chose it. Shut up. <laughs> Not necessarily. Um, the canoeing just seems clunkier and, and less uh, maneuverable when you're kind of in it. Um, a kayak seems a little more nimble, a little more almost like, like an athletic version of a, like a, a canoe. So I, I lean more to uh kayaks and uh i would definitely you know you know do it again um so so yeah kayak over canoe for me um yeah, team, kayak. team kayak for sure um all right 
Controversy number two for tonight, Jill. Uh, crushed or cubed ice in your drink? Uh, cubed. Any reason? Why? Because I don't like getting pieces of ice in my mouth when I'm sipping my drink. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a fan of that. Mm-hmm. I, have sen- I have sensitive teeth, so yeah, I don't need the ice. You sensodyne. <laughs> Change your life, yeah, trust me. The same way. Okay. Okay. Noted. <laughs> Adam? Yep. <laughs> so... I, so, a person that used to know me really well that um, used to hate when I chewed my ice. I had a bad habit of chewing ice. And because I like to chew my ice, I am a huge fan of crushed ice. Because that's, it's more to go around. It's more in my mouth for me to chew. So, that's why I go crushed. And I hate, there's nothing worse than like having the crushed ice as an option on a fridge and going to press it and it not fucking working. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing more aggravating to me like in that, you know, in that type of situation. That sounds like a a first world problem. I was going to say, your life is so hard, Adam. (laughs) Listen, I've I've relapsed over it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I've obviously had both. I absolutely despise crushed ice in a drink. It, it, just like with you, Jill, it's just like so, just like all over the place. You can't even like almost like drink the drink without getting this like, like chunk of ice in your mouth and you got to spit it back out into the drink and try to actually get some drink. Cubed ice, so much more sophisticated. I feel like I, you know, I need to be in like a suit and tie and I'm just like. Yes, this is this is what the the privilege do. The privilege. Privilege in that cube dice. All right, controversy number three for tonight: um, ketchup on eggs or absolutely not. Hundred percent ketchup on eggs. I actually cannot eat eggs without ketchup. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna really. You got you got one. you got pro you got major problems, Jill. <laughs> you should work that out in therapy. Fix yeah, that I'll, right yeah, up. I'll, I'll put it on my agenda for next week. <laughs> Adam. Yeah, we've done this one before when a friend of mine was on oh, as a guest. God. You don't remember that? You don't remember your last name barely, but you're going to remember a controversy that we did like eight you know, months I ago? It, like, I remember it so vividly. It, it was when Lindsay was on, and Lindsay said that her dad taught her to put the ketchup on it, and you said you like made fun of her dad or something, and God. I stuck up for the dad. I said, leave her dad alone. He's a fucking man. <laughs> and, and freaking, that, I remember it like it was yesterday. Okay. All right. That's what happened? We did this one. All right. Can you can you still answer it though? Maybe. What do you say? Yeah. Well, you're you fail to say you're just saying eggs. You didn't say what type of egg, like fried egg, fucking scrambled egg. Like what type of egg are we putting the ketchup on? Because that matters. No, that's not the that's not the question. It's ketchup on eggs. Decide what kind of eggs you want ketchup on or not, and move along. 
I would not have them on a fried egg, but I would have it on scrambled eggs. Okay. All day. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point because I I only eat scrambled eggs, so that you know that that fit. Um, both of you are gross. Um, wow. eggs are perfect the way that they are. Some salt, a, l- a little bit of, you know, black pepper. That's eggs, scrambled eggs. It's perfect. Maybe a little cheese, spice it up a little bit. You don't put ketchup on eggs, people. Are we, are, are, are we a, a population of like adult children? We got to put ketchup on everything for kids to be able to like eat everything. Because it's, it, it, it's, it's a common condiment? Come on. Grow up. No ketchup on eggs. Ever. A poll, more people would say that they do it. And, 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 I, and I have my opinion. So there's that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. Controversy number four for tonight. Do you put your sweaters on hangers? Or not? I do. I do hang my sweater. Your hanger sweater. Sweater hanger. Yeah. I'm a sweater hanger. For sure. Mm-hmm. Any reasoning for that? You want to back it up? Um, it just, I think it helps it not get wrinkled. Um, and yeah, I don't have, I just prefer to hang my clothes mm. in general. All right. All right. Adam. Bobros. Answer the question. Say it again. <laughs> Adam's owned out. So this is the guy who just said he remembers a ketchup story from six months ago, but you don't remember the fucking question that I just asked a second ago? Maybe I just want it for clarity, okay? The Maybe. question was sweaters on hangers or no. What clarity? <laughs> it's a sweater on a hanger or not. So if you're putting the sweater on a hanger the way you would put a college shirt on a hanger, then no, because if you did it like that, then it outst- it makes the like the shoulder part of the sweater like stretched out and deformed. Okay, but um, so the majority of my sweaters are in a drawer, folded up nicely. But if I need an overflow, which I do, because I'm a clothes whore. Um, my sweater needs an overflow. It would go on a hanger folded up nicely on the hanger, not like hanging. Mm. Not how you, you like typically use the hanger, if that makes sense. Does, I, guys, I can't picture that at all. You guys understand? Yes. No. I, uh, don't feed into it, Jill. <laughs> this is another like 60-minute conversation. In the middle, like the little bar part, like that goes across. I would fold it up like on that. Oh, like a pair of pants, but you put. Yeah, yeah. I guess that would be a good example. Like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. That's new. (laughs) Well, it's Adam, so there's that. Um, I was not a sweater hanger person for quite a long time. I I would say this is a new version of me, a new identity. That's only kind of came to fruition probably in the last 
I would say like five years. So Adam, to your point, I agree with you. The old style hangers, this is actually a hanger problem and not a sweater problem. The old style hangers would puff up the the shoulders. But if right. you buy the, the, the velvet ones, the new ones that don't slip, yeah. they, they don't do that to sweaters. So now I am a sweater hanger guy. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When, when you come over, uh, I'll show you. I'll, I'll give you a couple of velvet hangers. Dude, you read my mind. Like, like I'm like, oh, when I go over, I'm going to, I'll check it out. Yeah. You can get like you, if you take him to that um, that TJ Maxx or that Marshalls you guys were talking about last week. Um, <laughs> he can buy a pack for like ten bucks. Exactly. <laughs> You're a cheapskate. Um, all right, last controversy for tonight. When it comes to apples, and there's two choices: Jill, oh Golden Delicious, or Macintosh. Macintosh, the green, are they green? Wait, wait, no. I can't, no, Macintosh is red. No. Okay, um, I'd probably go with Golden Delicious. Mm-hmm. I actually, I'd go with the Gala apples. I like those the best. But mm-hmm. You didn't, you didn't offer me that choice. No, so no, no. We're, we're not going too fancy in Apple Land. <laughs> okay. You get two choices. <laughs> so gold, Golden Delicious. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Adam. Can you repeat it, please? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Jill, can you repeat it? Golden Delicious or Macintosh apples? Okay. Why would you have this controversy on with me? Listen, you know I'm allergic to fucking apples. <laughs> I can't have any fruit that has a core in the middle. I was taking out on ambulance while I was looking at cab because of the allergy. <laughs> And you've heard the story a million times, and yet you're having it as a controversy. I'm not even bringing with this one. Move on. All right. Adam did... chooses an EpiPen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with you? It's not like I have the allergy. You deal with it. <laughs> uh, um, I, I am 100% a golden delicious person. Apple. If I go apple picking, I will literally run to that aisle of app, like the the trees and just go ape shit and just eat all the apples and then stuff them all in the bag. I'm not a big fan of Macintosh. I, I it, Golden Delicious is perfectly sweet. It, it does a great job. The others don't even compare. There's even like Red Delicious that I will is a, it's a a distant second. But in my house, you come over, Adam. Gold delicious apples all over the place. Obviously, you can't have one because you have an allergy to things that have cores. Whatever. But I'll give you a fucking banana. You can have a banana. But um, yeah. <laughs> golden delicious all the way. Best apple. Hey, listen. Um, no. <laughs> you know how you want me to bring you a roast of a, a, <laughs> a soup of beef to you? Try you know, with it four hours in the back seat of my car. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so I'm actually I was wrong. I'm actually gonna I'm not gonna be coming from Boston. I'm actually gonna be coming from the North Shore. Where yeah, I know. They have good beefs, where they have beefs, right? Exactly. So I'm gonna be I will just grab it after like at a place near my work. Yeah. Yeah. There right. we go. Like you're using the the brain that God gave you. Good for you. Yeah, 
so I don't, yeah, because in the one that I, I had the other a couple of nights ago, I'm not going to get you that one because I'm not going to, I'm not going to be near there. So. Yeah. All right. All right. Looks like you have some research to do, Adam. Yeah. Well, and a friend of mine that is a lot nicer than I am that suggests, which I'm not going to do this, but he suggested that I show up at the, I show up at, I show up at the roast beef place and say I want everything like separated and not made into a beef. So and then I no. get like, when I get five minutes from your house, then no. I put it all together so it's like fresh. No, no, you'd ruin it. You, you absolutely ruin it. All right. No. Yeah, I would just order it the way you should. Yeah. Yeah. No, whatever. No. That yeah. probably was a conversation that you and I had could have had outside of the podcast. Maybe. No, I mean I think people might want to weigh in on the beef situation there are no people it's only jill and she's tired and she wants to go to bed and now you just took have you felt the pulse of of our podcast lately i mean you just spent three minutes of jill's light that she can't have back anymore what yeah exactly oh because you were talking all right jill Thank you very, very much from the bottom of my heart for doing the show, sharing your story. That's amazingly powerful. You're a wonderful person. And I'm so glad that you gave yourself a chance, one, and you're giving back to the community uh, of, of people needing and wanting and looking for recovery. So congratulations on all on all parts of your life. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Chill. I love you yeah. so much. I love you, you too. I think you're great, and you're. I'm just really proud of you. So thank you, and I'm proud of you. What you what you're doing here and putting yourself out there is not easy, and I think that I I, I commend you for that. I think it's it's so brave. I really do. Thanks, Joe. Awesome. Thank you. All right, so uh, that's our show for the audience. Is that uh, the show um, you'll be able to find on any um, any podcast platform probably within the next twenty four hours? Jill, also, if you want to listen to yourself talk, uh, you can definitely. Oh, no, no, no risk of that happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, t- tell your wife to listen to it. I don't know, whatever. Uh, um, but yeah, so the, the the podcast is the addict and the counselor. You can find us in uh, any podcast uh, platform. Uh, Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple uh, Podcast. Please email us at, at the addict and the counselor at gmail.com and follow our Instagram page, which is also the same name, the addict and the counselor. Um, and just you know, follow us. You know, tell others about the show. You know, listen. Um, and if you're interested in coming on, shoot us an email, and most likely you'll be a guest. And so, uh, Jill, once again, thank you very much for spending your Tuesday night with us. Of course, thank you guys so much. Well, have a good night. That's a wrap. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.